You're back at the Faculty Factory podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at my new friend, Dr. Eric Holmbo. Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you, Kim? I'm great. Thank you so much. I know you're super busy, but folks, let me tell you, who is Eric Holmbo? Dr. Holmbo. Well, at the time this podcast is dropping, he's something new, but let me tell you what he is right now as we're talking. Dr. Holmbo is the Chief Research Milestones Development and Evaluation Officer at ACGME. I hope you know what ACGME is. It is the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. But when this episode is dropping, drum roll, Dr. Holmbo is the new CEO of Intel. So welcome to the podcast and thanks for being here, Eric. Um, just a little note before we get started. I want everyone listening to know that Dr. Holmbo came to us because of Dr. Ben Kinnear. Hopefully you, said, you listened to Ben's episode. It was so amazing. He's such a great human being. Um, I loved his parting words about growing your garden. So awesome. You got to listen to that episode. But anyway, Ben said, hey, you know who else you need on this podcast? Eric Holmbo. And I sent the email and he was so kind and he's here and he's going to talk about something super cool, very important, not going to go away. We need to address it. It's transforming to an outcome-based system. So again, Dr. Eric Humboldt, thanks so much for being here. What in the world is outcome-based, outcomes-based system? Which system, which outcome? Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me, Kim. And by the way, I'm not the least bit surprised that Ben was amazing. Uh, he's one of my favorite individuals and he's just incredibly bright. And when we talk about outcomes, we're really referring to essentially two components. First is what we refer to educational outcomes. In other words, we wanna make sure that our health professionals, in this case, I work mostly in the physician training space, truly have the abilities uh, to provide high quality care when they exit the formal training years. Uh, and so we call those educational outcomes. Right now, we have ways of representing those the ones that I particularly work with are called competency milestones that are developmental descriptors of where folks should be moving along these various stages with kind of a goal of reaching what we call proficiency at a minimum by the end of training in these kind of six general competencies and sub-competencies. Another way folks represent Educational outcomes are called entrustable professional activities. I'm willing to bet Ben may have had a few words to say about those. And so I will refer to his wonderful expertise. But I, I basically, EPAs describe the activities that um, physicians do. Um, and the way we think about the two is you need a certain set of individual abilities in order to perform the activity. So EPAs tend to be a bit more holistic. So you know, the education outcome is really important, but ultimately, and one of the mantras of an outcomes-based approach is that you want to make sure it's meeting the needs of the public and communities you are serving. Hmm. And so the ultimate outcomes are really how well are we caring for the health and healthcare of the people we serve. And so that in and of itself has evolved over time. Originally it was called the triple aim where we focused on what's the population uh, health look like, what's the cost of care and how do we reduce those costs since the United States is such an outlier. 
And also, how do we make sure patients get safe, effective, efficient, patient-centered, timely, and equitable care? And that's where we started from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. That then got evolved to the quadruple aim where we realized we have to attend to the well-being of our healthcare workforce. Burnt out, fatigued healthcare professionals don't perform as well. Who knew, right? And then more recently, folks have argued that maybe we should move to the quintuple aim where we elevate equity as its own core aim given the pernicious and persistent problems of healthcare disparities. And so I come from a health services research background and I've always seen the educational system as one lever to actually help us achieve the quintuple aim. And so that to me is the ultimate set of outcomes. Oh my goodness. It's, it's amazing. First of all, thanks for that primer. I feel like we could just stop there, rewind, <laughs> and let's go through each one of those things. It's so complex and yet yep. comprehensive and robust and kind of makes me feel as a maybe a program coordinator, as an evaluator, as an educator, as a faculty person, like, oh my gosh, it's so much, so yep. much to design, to deliver, to learn, to know, to be, to measure, and then put that in the context of not only our communities and our patients that we serve, but the faculty we serve and their growth and development over the over the trajectory of an, a career in academic medicine. It's a yep. lot. How how is the ACGME doing that now? How are we measuring those outcomes currently? Uh, it's a great question. I think one of the things that's kind of embedded in that kind of wonderful summary is just the complexity of the system, right? All the moving parts. And so we at the ACGME really try to think through the lens of complex adaptive systems and the interdependencies that are involved in running a you know, residency or a fellowship program. Um, so you're absolutely right about the complexity. With regards to the, you know, describing that journey, as I mentioned earlier, for the, the learners, the residents and fellows, um, that rubric or template, if you will, is the milestones. So most specialties have somewhere between 18 to 22 a total subcompetencies and things like, you know, how well they can take a medical history, um, counsel a patient, work in interprofessional teams, um, navigate a system through things like care coordination and handoffs, and, and there are others, professionalism, et cetera. And those are really important. And to your point, it isn't just about the learners, because in order to really teach and assess all this, the faculty need to possess those abilities themselves. And so one of the challenges we've had over the 20 years, by the way, that we've been trying to move the system forward, because believe it or not, the launch of the outcome project by the ACGME was July 2001. So we're 22 years into this journey, and it is a messy, you know, iterative, difficult journey, and it's just something we're going to have to keep working at. So the, the faculty also need those abilities. And I can tell you when I trained, um, things like interprofessional teamwork, quality improvement and patient safety, reflective practice, the things that we now embed as important education outcomes, we're not part of my training. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I love my residency. I'm very grateful for it. 
but you can see what the gaps are. One thing that always sticks with me, another competency that was just not even on the radar at that time was something called systems-based practice. This is really focused on quality improvement, patient safety, system navigation, and the physician role in the health system. It just wasn't part of what we talked about during my training. And then when I went to the American Board of Internal Medicine, they require program directors um, each year to come in and complete an assessment of the learners and what we used to call the old fast track system. So anybody who's an internal medicine program director been there knows what I'm talking about. But they would ask to rate the residents on a nine-point scale across a series of items. Again, things like medical history, professionalism, so forth. When the six general competencies were formally launched in July 2001, ABIM did a crosswalk of its old assessment form that they asked program directors to fill each year and the new competencies. They were able to find at least one of their items aligned with the new competencies, except one. There was nothing in the old system for systems-based practice. Oh. There was no zero. So you can see what a big change it was to introduce this new concept and it's since evolved. So faculty, many of them didn't get that training. I didn't. So we all have to pick it up. To your other point, I think being a clinician educator in and of itself is such an important role. I think it is still underappreciated um, by too many academic institutions. But one of the things that we've done um, is to help lead the creation of what are called clinician educator milestones so that those can be used by faculty who want a career path um, in, in being a clinician educator to help them in their own professional development. So I got to give a shout out to Dr. Laura Egger. She led the development of those with a, a multidisciplinary group. And I think she did an amazing job. And so they have gotten a lot of attention, by the way, not only in the United States, but increasingly internationally. Um, we're doing workshops and various international meetings. Folks are coming up to her and saying like, hey, these are really interesting. Can we use them? And the answer is, of course, because everything the ACGME we provide is in the public domain. And that's because education is so transferable. That's exactly. Like the electronic health record or specific right. about tools may not be generalizable education that's yeah. absolutely transferable yep yep so those are things we're trying to do to help programs the, the third thing that was embedded with your comments i think is really important is that one of our big challenges and remains is that implementation is a very difficult messy process and so you have to deal with multiple moving parts anytime you implement a change or a new intervention or a new tool like the milestones and so we've tried to provide some support through something called the Implementation Guidebook, increasingly trying to leverage implementation science, which has become its own field, mm -hmm. um, into this educational space. And so I think that is going to be not only work we need to do now, but I think will be really important moving forward in the kind of concepts around implementation science are beginning to find their way into medical education. I think that's a good thing. Eric, can you talk about or reflect on the, the burden, the burden of, again, as I mentioned, the, the developing, the teaching, the evaluating, the assessing, the, the, from the learner side, the learning, the implementing, yep. the transferring it from institutions. I can't help but think in my faculty development role here at Hopkins, 
all we ever hear is our faculty are god bless them are asked to do more and more and more with less yep. and less and less and yep. we just seem to always be tacking on more 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 can you help us reflect on and because we know things change we know we have now artificial intelligence and we've got yeah. mergers and acquisitions and things things change the ecosystem changes so how are we thinking about balancing these tension points of of course it makes sense we want to know about systems but how do we mush that into all the other stuff are there is anybody thinking about how to sift away like maybe stuff that's we never seem to think get things off of our plate Right. Like here, Hopkins is like, here's another my learning thing you got to do. And this is due two weeks ago yesterday. And it only takes six hours. I mean, how do we sift through all that for the faculty user? That's my hat I'm wearing, not the faculty. Developer. Yeah. Um, first off, that I think that's such an important question. You and I could literally spend all day on this. Um, but I'll try to make, make a few observations. Part of it is, I think, what you've talked about. That is, if you want to add something you really need to develop the discipline about what can you remove? And that's sometimes hard, but if you're gonna add something, is there something we can take away, okay? Sometimes that taking away may be to look for opportunities to create efficiencies around various processes. Um, we've certainly seen that around the electronic medical record. There's a lot of work going on to try to make that whole interface much more efficient. So for example, this is where artificial intelligence, I think, or augmented intelligence may be really helpful. There's projects going on where essentially AI sits in the background and listens to the encounter between a physician and a patient, and then it creates the note. So there's no writing on the part of the physician. They can give their full attention um, to the patient. That technology, by the way, is available now. Right. Uh, and I believe there are programs up in Boston that are actually trying it and working with that. And, and so I think that's something we just have to leverage technology to improve the quality of the encounter because the, the, the EMR definitely intruded in many negative ways. There's a lot of good about it, but many negative ways with that encounter. And so, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, the story, many folks were quote charting uh, long after they'd finished clinic and, and that's, that's not sustainable. So that's one aspect. Um, I think the second is we, my, my view on this is that we've really tried to do medical education on the cheap for too long. I, I really believe that, that it's an adjunct to all this other stuff we're supposed to doing without recognizing that what happens in the time they're with us is incredibly impactful. Foundation. So I, yeah, I, I jokingly refer to it as the reverse Vegas rule. What happens <laughs> to Hopkins is not going to stay at Hopkins. That's right. And that can actually be a really good thing because if the quote imprinting or the skills they pick up there go with them, and we now know from multiple studies, they will, mm -hmm. we can actually make a real difference. And so we have to recognize that, that, mm -hmm. that you know, our educational programs aren't just nice to have they are going to have an impact on the quality of care that future patients are going to get. And that affects cost, right? Everything we just talked about in that quintuple aim will begin in medical school and particularly in residency when you enter specialty training. And so trying to do this on the cheap serves no useful purpose. That, that's, no, that's number two. The third thing is I think, and this is where we spend a lot of our time, at least in the assessment space, 
is getting folks to recognize that there are ways to embed or integrate assessment into your daily work. So that doesn't have to be an add-on. Let me give an example. Um, I've had a great fortune to work with Jen Kogan in studying direct observation and how to improve that. And one of the things we teach is like, okay, again, I'm an internist. If you're in clinic, every one of your residents has a first patient of the day. So instead of sitting in the preceptor room, go watch one of them, just one. Go watch some part of a visit. Take advantage of that moment because you're there anyways. It's not adding extra time. And watch them with a patient so that you can give them good feedback and coaching to support their professional development. Sure. A second example is when I was an inpatient attending, our interns pre-round every day. That's still something that goes on a regular basis. Why don't you join them one day out of the week? I get great one-on-one -on -one time. I'm going to have to see the patients anyways in attending. And so now I'm getting to observe, assess, coach, feedback, and I'm also taking care of the clinical work I need to do at the same time. So we talk a lot about that. So I think rethinking so the work, right, is, is I think really important. I'm, I'm not saying it still isn't going to take time. The idea that you can do this, you know, on the fringes of time, I think is just misguided. Absolutely. Uh, this is such an important thing that Hopkins and all of our training institutions are doing. Mm. And the more we understand the impact of the quality of the environment in which they're training and the relationship to future practice. And I can tell you, we've got some studies coming out that further add to that literature. Um, I think we have to get serious that this isn't a hobby to run an educational program. And you know that running faculty <laughs> development, that it takes a lot of ability and skill I certainly wasn't formally trained to do it. I had to pick up those abilities. Hopefully I picked up some, you know, who knows? Um, but the bottom line is all of that had to occur afterwards. Yep. And I was just fortunate to have um, basically Brownian collisions with amazing people like Lou Pangaro or Kelly Scaff or, you know, you name it, Paul Batalden, um, that just, you know, gave me repeated gifts on how to get better, but you don't want to leave it to chance. That's why we need to systematize this. And that's what we're trying to do again through the clinician educator milestones, codify mm. what mm. folks really need to be able to do for the benefit of not only themselves, but, and their learners, but this also has an impact on patients, right? But if yeah. you look at the logic model, what's at the end of the logic model? It's the patient caring for. Yeah. You know, Eric, you're so right. I love the way you think because education being marginalized and being the kind of like, of course, education. Yes, we all work in universities, which is that the central tenant is education by definition of working in academia, we are all educators. And yet the irony or the paradox is very low funding, low budget, little or less respect. And, and it's evidenced by the fact that few of us have promotion tracks that are educator excellence. We Hopkins just a couple of years ago came up with a clinical excellence promotion pathway. We'd always had the traditional research pathway. Okay. And we're pushing hard and our faculty are saying, Gosh, if you value education, let's codify it, as you say, and get, well, I mean, you could have a path with education, but really elevate the import of being an educator, a clinical educator, and promote on that basis alone. So 
you're so right. And I think once we balance out that seesaw and have um, measurable, obvious, overt um, acknowledgement of it, then maybe we'll start putting the, you know, the, the gravitas behind and the budget, the money that speak to them and the resources. So thanks for calling attention to that. Yeah, I mean, I do think there has been some progress made. I mean, there are universities that I think have done a nice job and created those the basic, you know, show your scholarly work that comes in different forms. Um, and it's also important to remember that most of at least our residency training programs are not university-based. They are at, you know, typically affiliated hospitals. They may be in rural areas. And, and so when you think about the GME system, unlike medical schools, that is a much more heterogeneous, diverse group. Um, and, but yet we all need those abilities. It doesn't matter if I'm in Boise, Idaho in a family medicine training program, or I'm downtown Baltimore, you know, at Hopkins, a lot of those skills are the same. Context is different for sure, but a lot of the abilities that are needed by clinician educators are no different. Exactly. And now within this current landscape of mergers and acquisitions and yeah. growing our footprints, I think it even makes even more sense yep. logically and financially to have that common set of values uh, that can crosswalk to right. hospitals being acquired and cultures and ways of thinking and being and behaving. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up a really important point is we see all this consolidation going on, it's gonna have an impact on the medical education system. Yeah. 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 Dr. Eric Humble, would I'm just dying to know, I can't help it, I'm just sitting here jumping at the bit. Could you, in the last couple of few minutes, share with us, uh, you know, those of us who teach leadership, you know, publish on leadership, read about leadership, and a lot of faculty, you know, get coached on leadership, did your journey, did you as a, a little 15-year-old a young man think that you're someday going to be a professor and a CEO and da, da 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 How did you get to be CEO of Intel? Can you give us a little insight into your journey? Um, just because I'm personally curious. <laughs> yeah. So to answer your question, um, my 15-year-old self, uh, that would be a no. <laughs> um, I, I always think back to a really, to me, prophetic um, line out of a John Lennon song um, who said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Yep. And that I think is a theme for me. I have been incredibly fortunate, fortunate to encounter folks who opened up other possibilities for me um, about where the path might go. Because if if you'd asked my 15-year-old self, by the way, I knew I wanted to be a physician. Don't ask me why. Nobody in my family's ever a doc. I just, I knew that's what I wanted to be. I thought it would be a family medicine doc back in central Pennsylvania. I grew up in state college. Um, and that is obviously a great, great place. And those are incredibly important roles. That was where I started. How I ended up here, I think, again, is a set of collisions with amazing folks and just opportunities um, that became gifts, their privileges, right? I've always looked at leadership positions as a privilege, right? They're not entitlements. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to remember that. Um, and so one of the things I think for me, 
you know, for those leaders that have had the most impact on me are those who've done it quietly, who've done it humbly. Um, and it was always about taking that leadership opportunity to make things better or lives better for other. Mm. And I mm. think anytime you have the opportunity to do that, that's a real privilege and gift. It It's messy. Um, but at the same time, to have the opportunity, particularly in leadership, to empower others, um, to to help them, but not only empower them, knowing the importance of the work they do. It's as I've said, and I'll say it here. Um, I am deeply proud of what the team in the milestones department has accomplished. It's an amazing group of individuals that had tremendous respect for each other, supported each other. Um, we were never more than a shop of 12 people. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you look at the productivity of what's come out of that group, wow. it's a testament to their not only hard work, but but the fact that they've done it through a collaborative lens. We, we refer to our work in the department as being part of a collaboratory. Oh, right? I love that word. Yeah, I think it's such an important word. We co-produce with others other incredibly talented folks, whether it be in milestone development that Laura Egger has brilliantly led or all of our outcomes research that's uh, led by Sean Hogan and and the whole team that's involved with that. It's a collaboratory. And in the end, that's the only way, in my view, that you really can truly make a major difference, right? You know, uh, otherwise you can work around the margins, but if you really want to move a system together, it has to be a collaborative, multi-pronged effort. And to me, I think that's really an important aspect of leadership. Good for you. And and Eric, um, again, your modesty speaking here, You, um, this does not happen accidentally. You know, one doesn't have such a vibrant, healthy, productive, passionate team by accident. I mean, I've never met anybody who's like, who knew? I just woke up one day and this team magically showed up in my life. It takes work. As you said, it's messy, multi-layered, highly yeah. complex, highly matrix systems we work in. And doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but that is purposeful. So kudos to you and your leadership. Now I kind of understand how you now have uh, the CEO title slapped on you. So well, thank you, you for that. I would, you know, you made me think of one other thing I'd like to share. So I was in the Navy. Um, for 23 years. And one of the things I learned there that became a really important life lesson is that never design anything that depends on you for its success. For the moment you do that, you have condemned it to failure. And the reason that was so important in the Navy is we moved around. Um, We would move from what was called one billet to another. So there was never any guarantee, unlike at a university or other places where you might stay for a long period of time. That just wasn't the usual design of a military career. So if you really thought something was going to be valuable and useful, you better design it so that somebody else can pick it up and do do it better than you. Absolute sustainability. You are so right. How many times we've seen colleagues and friends and well-intentioned people designing something, creating something, building something, and then being all kind of cranky pants when they hand it off to somebody and the thing, whatever happened to the thing, well, I gave it to Kim Skrupski and the thing all went to pot. 
that's <laughs> maybe not Kim Strzelski's fault or whoever. It's it's right. yeah, it's really um it, it's because it, it's hard, it's difficult, but it is so so important to recognize building and making something that has sustainability and legs and legacy beyond the fact that you're breathing air into it. Yeah, and and the whole purpose is is so that you know it it iterates, right? I mean, you're never one and done. Like no matter what you create, that's its first iteration. You know, the world changes, science changes, and so you know you want folks to pick it up, make it their own, or make it you know their own with others, and, and move it forward. I mean, that to me is success, and. And this is a bit paradoxical, and I think it's a little bit more difficult when you're in these university environments. Um, but, you know, if you're really successful, the paradox is that if you go back in a year, let's say you revisit and take a look at something you started, if you've been successful, nobody have any idea you had anything to do with it. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. You're like, oh. It doesn't feel good in, in some <laughs> respects personally, but but that's... That's the cycle of life, right? <laughs> Can we start singing Lion King, the circle of life? <laughs> I love that. I, I, I love that. I was movie. once interviewing somebody on my this own podcast, and she was started telling me about WAGs, writing accountability groups. And I sat there and, and thought, oh gosh, she doesn't know that I kind of did those. Like I have the book and the article on the website, and we started at the School of Medicine, started yeah. with back with my mentee Karma Fouché in, in, in Hopkins. But that's I mean, success. And I was like, somebody oh, picked that up. <laughs> but somebody picked up what you did and they're using it. So good for you. I know. Right? Isn't that so funny? I love it. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that is humility. Good. You, you, are, you are so <laughs> humble. Uh, could you please, Dr. Eric Humble, tell us what should we know about Intel? Yeah, thanks for asking. So Intel is the umbrella organization for the education uh, Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates and FAMER, which is the Foundation for the Advancement of International Medical Education and Research. Um, and so the ECFMG is really an essential organization um, for helping international medical graduates uh, get credential uh, and receive a certificate so that they can train in the United States. FAMER, based on its name, is really thinking more globally. It's kind of a way ECFMG is given back by creating, they have these um, international institutes to upskill or help folks acquire abilities through certificate programs is one example, and just try to contribute to this global drive to try to advance CBME. The reason I, um, I'm so attracted to organization is because of ABIM and ACGME, I've been doing a fair amount of work in the international space. And we've actually created what's called a regional hub assessment program at ACGME to improve frontline training and assessment practices, help faculty get better at it. And seven of our hubs are international. So I've been working in different countries uh, at ACGME. And one of the things I think a lot of folks don't recognize, but um, roughly 23 to 24% of the entire healthcare workforce in the United States are international medical grads. And they make up a similar proportion every year in residencies. In fact, they are absolutely critical to the health of internal medicine residency training system in the United States. Some programs would not exist without IMGs. And so these international graduates um, contribute mightily 
to the healthcare system. You know, when you have one in five to one in four docs coming through an international training program, you can see the impact they have and how important they are to our system. And right now, probably for the foreseeable future, the number of residency slots that are available versus the number of graduates coming out of US training programs, both allopathic and osteopathic, cannot fill all of those slots. In fact, the gap this past year was over 7,000 residency oh. slots. Wow. Yeah, think wow. about that. Again, about 22, 23%, give or take. Um, so it just goes to show you, as has always been the case in this country, just how important mm -hmm. folks coming from other places are to the vibrancy um, of our entire country, but also how lucky we are to be having these folks coming because, you know, we are at times contributing to brain drain. And so we have to balance that, right? That's partly why FAME was created as part of a give back mechanism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so this will be a very interesting um, uh, change and I hope to leverage you know, my experience in the international space. But again, I feel very privileged um, to have this opportunity. It's, it's, um, it's an amazing group there and, and I'm really privileged to work with them. Golly, and they are fortunate to have you Dr. Oh. Eric Holmbo, this is, I, I can't wait to see what happens here. I love that you mentioned Famer. I didn't realize that, but yeah, we've had Rashmi Bias and yes. certainly Paige Morahan on the podcast. So this is, and I didn't know about Intel. So I'm going to, we're all going to take a look to see what's happening at Intel, I-N-T-E-A-L-T-H. We are looking forward to your leadership, your, the innovation, bringing this depth of, um, passion and understanding for education. This is all perfect. This sounds like all the stars are aligning, not only for us um, in the industry, but for you, for Intel, uh, ACG, me, it's, this is what, it's so interesting to see how people's lives go. And then it's almost like, aha, this is why I'm here. All this has been for this. So congratulations to them for landing oh, you, you and scoring your leadership. And this is going to be really good things to look forward to. I, I can tell. Yeah, no, like I said, I, I feel very privileged to do this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the challenge. Well, they're lucky. Dr. Errol Combo, thank you for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. I'll let you do the peace out to everybody and um, you can have the last word. Uh, again, just thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I just want folks to just keep plugging away. You know, the, the, the outcomes-based approach, I, I really believe is very important and I think provides us a real opportunity to truly improve the future care. And I will say, as somebody who just turned 65, I have a little bit of a personal stake in this, <laughs> you know, because I know I'm going to need medical care in the future. And I really, really you know, hope the folks feel like they've been well prepared to do that. Come on, y'all. Don't let them down. Don't let Eric down. <laughs> you got to go for Dr. Holmbo. I got a little personal stake in this, right? <laughs> I, get, I am right there with you. And don't forget, I love the collaboratory, folks. Let's remember that word. That's a great word, collaboratory. And then, of course, let's not forget Dr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Dr. John Lennon. I gave, I just gave him a doctoral degree. Life is what happens while we're busy making plans. It's going to happen anyway, folks. Life is happening. Let's make some really good plans. This is great. Dr. Errol Combo, you've been wonderful. Thanks oh, for being thanks. on the podcast. Um, see, folks, isn't this a fun conversation? You, too, can be on the podcast. 
and share all your wisdom with the, with the world. So give me a line, drop me a line. Let's get on board. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to year six of the Faculty Factory Podcast. I just want to let you know that as of January 1st, 2024, this podcast has had nearly 86,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 94 different countries. And our website has drawn 40,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. This is an international platform and we want you to be a guest on our show. Send us a message over at facultyfactory.org slash contact us if you are interested or if you just have any feedback on our show at all or you can contact our host dr kimberly skorupski directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu thank you so much for being a part of this program over the years Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.